Happy Mother's Day. Start with that. Um, we had a seven-year-old wake up about 3.30 this morning and start puking and not stop yet. So happy Mother's Day, moms. I know that's what you all do. Mom is home taking care of her so I can be here with you. Um, and thank you, moms, for doing that. Thank you for loving our kids. Thank you for pointing them to Jesus. And I didn't want to start today without saying that to all of you. That isn't the main reason we're here, and that's not an insult to you. We love you, and we are saying Happy Mother's Day. Um, but as much as we love you, as important as you are, uh, Jesus is more important. <laughs> and I would say the same thing on Father's Day, by the way, like 10 times more. So, <laughs> um, But we are here today to study the Bible together, to come to God and say, we need you to speak to us and to teach us and to work in us and to keep making us into your people and building us into your church and we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, I know like what we do every week is a little bit different than maybe usual in the fact that we get together and I, I pray for us that God will speak to all of us out of his word and I read this section of the Bible and then I ask you, like, what's God saying to you about himself? You know, this big truth, this big question of what's this teach us about God? Who he is, how he works, how he works in his people's lives, his nature, his character. And we're doing that today, but the whole time we've been in the book of Acts, we've been taking really big chunks, like at least a chapter a week, uh, sometimes two chapters a week. Last week I asked you if you would summarize the whole book for me. Um, and I think that's good for us because there's lots of different ways to study the Bible and read the Bible. And reading big chunks, I feel like, is the thing that's the least common for us. Like if, if you think about your devotionals, the kind of things that most of us do with a daily devotional, you know, it's a paragraph, it's a verse. It's a single thought, and, and that's good too. Like I'm glad that you do that. But there are times when it really is great to take a larger section of Scripture and allow the context to really give us a bigger picture of what's going on. And so I would encourage you to work into your, your personal time with God, your personal Bible study, some big chunk reading, where you sit down even and you say, you know, the book of Philippians is four chapters. I can read all that in 10 or 12 minutes. I could read the whole thing and ask, what's God saying out of this entire letter to the church? Uh, and a lot of the New Testament letters are that way. Even the Gospels, you know, if you take Mark, that's 16 chapters. If you wanted to tackle four chapters a day, in four days you can read the whole book, like in, in a big chunk setting. If you really want to get ambitious, read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. It's really good to do that. And so I've been doing that for us just in the sense of let's take some big chunks. I've also been doing it because I really believe that it's better for you to hear the Bible than it is for you to hear me talk. <laughs> but the most profitable thing we can do together is read the Bible together and let God speak out of the Bible. And so that's partly motivated for me. And then also, we only get together once a week. Like we've got one hour a week, and I think that covering big sections of Scripture together is a really healthy thing for us. So there's some reasons for it. But I don't want you to get the idea that this Bible study method of praying and asking God to speak and then reading a chunk of Scripture and saying, what's this teach about God? And then what's he saying to our hearts? I don't want you to think that's limited to, okay, I've got to read a chapter or two chapters or a book for this to work. So we're doing something different today. Just as much as you can take a big chunk and read, you know, four chapters at a time, you can also zero in and say, I want to, I want to really chew on this right here today. I, I want to meditate on what God is saying in this little section, and I want to digest it, and I just want to reflect on it over and over and over all day. And so I know you've got Psalm 23 there in your notes, but uh, this is what we're going to do today. Five words. Now, I'm still going to pray for us, and we're going to ask the same question, um, but this is our text for the day. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that God can say to us out of these five words. Here in a minute, after I pray and I read these, I want you to reflect on these with that question, what does this teach us about God? About who he is, how he works, what he does with his people, um, his nature, his character. Like, why, out of all the things that he could pick to compare himself to, to say that he is, all the ways that he could communicate to us who he is, why this? What's he saying to us? So I'm going to pray for us right now, and this is what we're going to try today, and we're going to see how it goes. Uh, you go first. So whatever you want to say, I want you to say it because you know I've got thoughts and once I start, you know how that goes sometimes. So I'll give you the chance first to think for a minute and then we'll, we'll go from there. But let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the truth of your word in the Bible that you have been 
good and gracious and kind to speak to us and reveal yourself to us and make yourself known. And Father, I thank you that your word is powerful and that there is a depth and a breadth to the truth of what you have revealed about yourself that that wherever we go from the beginning of the Bible to the end, that it's filled with who you are and it's filled with how you have made yourself known in Jesus and how you have revealed your gospel and your grace in Jesus. And Father, that even in five words today that you are telling us who you are, help us to see you right now. I pray that this would be a time when we really encounter you, that you would speak by your spirit, that you would teach by your spirit, that you would reveal yourself and that we would know you more, that we would love you more, that we would trust you more, that our hearts and our lives will be changed because of how you show yourself to us today in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Also, before I read this, I did make a promise to the six, seven-year-old that I would do this online. So, hi, Emery. I love you, sweetie. Sorry that you're not here with us today. Glad mommy's taking care of you. All right, that was the hi to Emery because she had to stay at home. Here we go. Are you ready? I know you all sat with me through two chapters of Acts so many times where I've read 76 verses, so... The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. What's that teach us about God? Okay, God is our shepherd. It's true. God is always looking out for us. We should always focus on God. Yeah, in both of these, God is the only voice we need. If God is our shepherd, the the thing that we're building on there, y'all going fast. I'm even sloppier than usual. Um, If God is our shepherd, we're his sheep. And so we should always focus on God the way the sheep focus on their shepherd. God's the only voice we need, the way that the, the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice and follow him. What else stands out to you? Truths about God. He is our provider. God is our provider. You can also, if you wanted to say it, if this clicks in your head, God provides for us. God cares about us individually. And just, you know, we've, so far we've focused a whole lot on uh, this word. And I think Kent right there is zeroing in on this word. My, not, not just a shepherd, not just a shepherd of a whole bunch, but my shepherd, personally, individually. What else? God is merciful even when we don't deserve it. You know, this is one of the images. Deserve, get that E on there. It, that Jesus picks up in his teaching in the Gospels in the New Testament where he's wanting to explain to all these self-righteous religious people that think that they're really good and there are these outcast sinners that are really bad, and they can't understand why Jesus keeps spending time with these horrible, wretched, terrible people who've done awful things and aren't good and don't look good and don't do the things God says. And Jesus, he, he describes it several different ways. But one of the things he says is, hey, if you've got a hundred sheep and you lose one, don't you leave the 99 to go find the one? This is what God does when you wander away, when you stray, when, you, when, like when you're the one who's messed it up and you're gone and you're separated from God because of what you've done. He comes and finds you the way a shepherd comes and finds his lost sheep. And Jesus said, this is what I came to do. Like these, these are the people that I came, the people that you think deserve it the least, I came for them the most. 
I came to find them and to bring them back to God. Like just because they've walked away from God, God hasn't walked away from them. Just because they've stopped loving God, God hasn't stopped loving them. And then turn that to you. Just because you've walked away from God, God hasn't walked away from you. Just because you've stopped loving God, God hasn't stopped loving you. Just because you can't find your way back to God doesn't mean that God won't come and find you. That's always how you get back to God. He comes and finds you. He comes and finds you when you're not even looking for him. He's that kind of shepherd. He's merciful to his lost sheep. He's merciful to his wandering sheep. He is patient and he's kind and he's persistent and he pursues and he pursues and he pursues. What else stands out to you? God is Lord, and it didn't show up here on this. Let me see if it did in your notes in the worship guide. Yeah, do you see how that's all caps there in, in your worship guide? Like the, and then L-O-R-D, like even though it's lower font in the O-R-D. God is Lord, that's a specific name for God in the Old Testament. This is the divine name of Yahweh, which was just W-H. Y-H-W-H, and we usually fill it in with an A and an E there. But that this is who God is, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but that he's the Lord, he is this specific God who's revealed himself and made himself known by this name. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've hit that one, we've hit that one, we've hit that one. Anything else that stands out to you? And it could be from the same words we've already looked at, but other truths about God. Mm. Let's do it this way. There is one God. The Lord. Like the one who's in this role. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we had God provides earlier. We've got God protects us. God disciplines us. And we hear that word the wrong way a lot of times. And I think you've got more packed in there. I know you're not done, but I didn't want to get your truths, miss them all. With discipline, you know, we hear punishment a lot of the time. And that's just the bent of our flesh, hearing it the wrong way and not understanding the nature of God towards us. And one of the best ways for me to think about it, and this may not be for you, like, how many of you, this is just fun, this has nothing particular to do with this, how many of you hate sports illustrations? You're just like, oh my word, it's another sports illustration. Yeah, I knew Tasha did, that's why I was asking. All right. How many of you love sports illustrations? All right. And the rest of you are just like, I don't care, just make your point. All right. So... Growing up, I, I played sports, but I had two, in general, types of coaches. There was the type of coach that was pretty much on a power trip, and he was coaching because he wanted to be a coach. You know what I mean? And so, like, he would come into practice angry. We hadn't even started yet, and he's already mad at us. You know, like, he's just looking for the first thing we do wrong. Get on the line! And you run as punishment. Like, you run because you did something wrong, or you run just because he's in a bad mood, or you run because he's just who he is. But you're running as punishment. And you can call that discipline. But then there was this other kind of coach that he coached because he loved kids, he loved the sport, um, he loved competition, there was things that, other things, and he wanted to invest in his kids and pour into his kids, and he wanted to make you the best at whatever it was you're playing that he could, and he cared about you. And so we'd practice, and we'd practice hard. As soon as you'd practice harder, with that coach than you would the other coach anyway because he was actually focused on what you need to be doing. And you would certainly practice harder for him because right? he cared about you and you cared about him. But the thing was, at the end of practice, a lot of times that coach would be like, all right, everybody on the line. We're going to run. You know, and we might run 20 sprints across the field after two and a half hours of practice. 
But it was because, it wasn't because we'd done anything wrong, it wasn't because he was mad at us, it wasn't because he was punishing us, it was because he knew that for us to be the best that we could be at, let's just say, football, that when the fourth quarter came, we needed to be in better shape than the other team. And that we had just practiced were three quarters. And what we ran at the end is how we would play in the fourth quarter. And so this coach made us run, and it was punishment. And this coach made us run, and it was preparation. And with both of them, you could use the word discipline. And I think it's really important for you to understand that when God disciplines you, he disciplines you from a place of love, that he is for you, that forever now, because of Jesus, God is for you and not against you. God is pleased with you and not angry at you. God does not condemn you. Now, there are things that he's going to change in you. There are things that he's going to say, long term, this isn't acceptable in your heart. For your sake, like for you to be who you need to be and who I want to make you into, like for you to be the person that I've created you to be, we've got to deal with that. We've got to get that in shape in your heart. And he's going to do some things that are hard, like running at the end of practice is hard, but it's good for you. And when it comes from a place of love, from somebody who cares about you and wants the best for you, it is completely different than the like, let's just say it, then the coach that you hate, and it's like, I don't even want to go to practice today. I don't care what this guy says. I don't want to do what he says. Verse, I would jump in front of a train for this guy. Like, I had the, my defensive coordinator in high school. I promise you, if he said jump in front of this train, I'd be like, let's do it. Like, I, mean, I would have. I'm way off track right now, but this guy was so, this guy was so into what he did that uh, my senior year, we, we, we had a pretty good team. We always made the playoffs. We're in the talk about being able to win a state championship. We usually won the district, that kind of stuff. But my senior year, we lost the first two games of the season. And it was just like, what is happening? Well, Coach Saylor had a, had a problem with one of his teeth and had to go to the dentist week three, and he got a tooth pulled. And we went on a winning streak. So we won several games. Well, later in the season, we lost a game. He goes back to the dentist. He's like, tell me which tooth I need the least. And he gets another tooth pulled to start another winning streak. Like, that's when you know he's more invested than you are. It's like, yeah, I'll run for you. <laughs> like, whatever you want. I mean, I'm not saying that that's sane. It's not sane. I'm not saying that stuff works. It doesn't work. But it does make you love the guy. So, anyway, all this to say, God disciplines us, yes, from a place of love, from a place of this is best for you, and I want what's best for you, and I love you so much that I won't do less than what's best for you. And it's never, hey, I'm against you, I'm angry at you, I'm punishing you. It's not Jesus took your punishment. Do you realize that? Like, if you are trusting in Jesus and you are one with Jesus, your sin is gone. And Jesus has dealt with it on the cross and he's paid the price. Like, all the condemnation that God would have for you and rightly would have for you, has been taken care of in Jesus. It's not that God minimized your sin or ignored it or lessened it or, or just swept it under the rug. It's that he dealt with it so fully and so completely that there's nothing else to be done with it. Like He does condemn your sin, but he doesn't condemn you. He does punish your sin, but he doesn't punish you in Jesus. And so he's fully just. He's fully righteous. He's fully holy. He hasn't minimized that at all, but it is no longer connected to you in the eyes of God, and God is the one who speaks reality into existence. So if he says that sin is not yours anymore, that sin's not yours anymore. Jesus took it, and Jesus paid for it, and it's done. And so God has no condemnation for you, no wrath for you, no anger towards you, no punishment, because Jesus paid the full price. And so everything that comes to you now, and this is, this is such a good thing to know, everything that comes to you now in this life, no matter how hard it is, it is not punishment from the hands of a God who's angry at you. It's discipline from a loving Father who cares about you and is still shaping your soul like forming your heart into the likeness of Jesus and making you into something glorious for all eternity. Like that's where it comes from. And listen, that doesn't mean it's not hard. Like I puked sometimes at the end of practice during those sprints, okay? It was hard. Like August the 2nd, 94 degrees and 100% humidity, and we've been out there from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., and the sun's still up. Like it's hard. And so there's going to be hard things in your life. There's going to be suffering. Like in this broken, fallen world, until Jesus comes back and makes everything right, not everything's going to go the way that we think it should or the way we want it to or the way it would if the fall hadn't happened. But in the midst of that, God's at work, and he's doing good things in you, and he's doing good things for you, and he's 
always for you. Always. And he takes some of the hardest things and he uses them to shape you the most, to stretch you, like to, to expand your faith and to deepen you, to carve out in you this depth and this capacity where you can receive more of him and more of his grace. And it's only in the stretching and the deepening and both those things, you know how that feels, like to really be stretched, to really be carved out. Like There is pain associated with that, but it's the type of pain where he's saying, this is the only way I can give you more of me, and I want you to have more of me. So yeah, all right, Adam, that's still, that's all on your, your, your watch there. That's your time. Um, but you, were you done with those, like, God protects, God disciplines? Because I know where you're going with the first one, too, and I want to come back to it. But do you want to say more? Right. Yeah, and, and I think you're exactly right. that If you look at the story of David... When God's ready to pick a new king for Israel, Saul has just, he's walked away from God, hasn't trusted God at any step of the way, and God says, I'm picking a new king. And when he picks a new king and he sends Samuel to Bethlehem and he sends him to Jesse's house and Jesse brings out these seven strong, handsome, these look like king type sons, David is so disregarded as the youngest and smallest and weakest that he doesn't even bother to bring him in from the fields. Like, there's no chance David's going to be the king. And it is, it's, it's the smallest, it's the youngest, it's the job that nobody else wants. Like, he's the one that's the shepherd taking care of the sheep. It's this unimportant, insignificant, dirty, stinky, terrible hours job that nobody wants. And then God chooses by the Holy Spirit to inspire David to say, I'm like that. And I think we could just start with this, like to see God... It's humble. There is a humility to God that you see in this parallel with David, but then ultimately in the greater David, you see it best of all in the humility of Jesus. That he would give up his place in heaven. He would give up his place at the right hand of the Father. He would give up all the glory and praise and worship and honor of heaven. And he would come, not just that he would come to earth, but he would come to earth as a human, as a human baby, born into a poor family, disregarded, rejected by everybody who the world would say is important. He would live a life that, that we would say, if you, just, if you were just to look at his 33-ish years on earth, we would say, that's a complete failure. Politically rejected, religiously rejected, his closest friends abandoned him, and he dies a criminal's death. Like the humility of Jesus to say, I'll give up this for that because I love my Father and I love you. But the complete lack of self-regard like nothing, nothing that Jesus did was driven by self. No self-preservation, no self-protection, no self-promotion. Right? He was completely dead to self, alive to the Father, loving the Father, and alive to his people, loving his people, but dead to himself, thinking about everyone else other than just the humility, the self-forgetfulness. So God is humble. And then also I do think we have here God is not concerned with, let's do it this way, looking impressive. Or you could say with impressive external appearances. Obviously, if he's willing to say, yeah, compare me to a shepherd, and you'll learn something about me. And I know what y'all think about shepherds, and I don't care. <laughs> but even more, in the story of David, it is like Samuel looks at these sons of Jesse, and he looks at the oldest, tallest, strongest, and he's like, that's a king. <laughs> like Everything the world thinks of, when they think of a king, I see it in him. And God as directly as could be. Like, if you want to know anything that God ever says directly, explicitly, where there's no, there's, there's no ambiguity and no question about where God stands on this, when he responds to Samuel, uh, there in 1 Samuel, he says, just as specifically as he can, you are thinking like people think. You're looking at outward appearances. But I don't look at outward appearances. I look at the heart. The things you can't see with your eyes. 
And just still, how much of our life do we spend, like in our own life personally, trying to polish up external appearances and trying to make ourselves look the best we can and present the best version of us that we can to the world, to our boss, to our friends on social media? And then how often is that also everything that drives what we do in a church? Like it looks good. It gets us excited. You know, these are measurable, visible results, and that's all we really want anyway. The stuff that that we can do, we can measure, and we can celebrate. And God's saying, I'm interested in something that you can't do and you can't measure. And when I do it, then you can celebrate. What else? Okay. Yeah, I don't think you're reading into that at all. That's what a shepherd does. Yes, that God, yeah, places himself in danger for us. I mean, when we say that Jesus takes our punishment, you know, there's lots of pieces of that that you can flesh out. But ultimately, I mean, you think about that the wrath of God himself the holy and righteous and just wrath of God is going to be poured out on your sin. There's nothing more dangerous than that because there's no one more powerful than God. He has omnipotence, right? all power behind him to carry out whatever his judgment is on any of us. And his judgment on your sin is that it deserves to be eternally punished. And he has all the power and all reality to carry that out. And Jesus says, I will stand in your place and I'll let that be poured out on me. Like you've never seen a shepherd like me. A shepherd that fights a wolf is brave. A shepherd that bears the wrath of God is beyond description. Like a shepherd can handle a wolf sometimes. A shepherd can handle a bear sometimes. No one can handle the wrath of God. It says it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He was crushed for you. He suffered for you. He stood in your place. He took everything you deserved and everything you could never, ever bear. And he took it all. And he took it to the grave with him. That's why he can say, I'm the good shepherd in John 10. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's why some people call him the greater shepherd. The best things that you see in a shepherd, the best things that you see in David in the Old Testament, Jesus is always better. Jesus is the better shepherd. Jesus is the better David. And so, yeah, you're not reading into it at all to say, this is what a shepherd does, and God's telling us, this is what he does. And then you look and you're like, and that's exactly what he did in Jesus. What God said he would do, we could even say that, God keeps his promises. Like he says he'll be your shepherd in Jesus. He showed you he's your shepherd forever. In ways you would never even have dreamed, he's your shepherd. In ways you wouldn't have dreamed, he protects you and provides for you and cares for you and places himself in danger for you. What else stands out to you? One more truth about God. Oh, that's a good one, too. <laughs> You're right. Thank you for that justification. I appreciate that. <laughs> Help me try to, let's flesh all these out real quickly. And, and, and you're right that you know, sports are common today, so we use sports metaphors because like, it, it does communicate in a language most of us understand. Even if we don't like it, we understand it. But in that day, you know, shepherds and sheep, it was really, really common, and, and they understood it. But if God's our shepherd, we're sheep, and it is, like, it's worth saying, so he knows what he's doing. We are pretty... Dumb. Do you have the humility to admit that? That you are a sheep, that you don't, you don't know where you need to go and you don't know how to get there. But your shepherd does. And that sometimes the best thing you could ever do is just open up your hands and say, my plans, they've been stupid. 
I know, I know you know. And I'm, I'm willing now, like with the humility of Jesus, as he lives in me and he humbles my heart, I'm willing to come and admit, this is who I am without you. I am a dumb, lost sheep without you. But you promised to be my shepherd, and I really, really need a shepherd, and I believe you. Will you lead me? And so, yeah, we hadn't written this one down yet, and it's a good, simple one to pull. God leads us. And, and hear that both as a promise, as this great thing, that, that this God that we've already been talking about, we've talked about how merciful he is and how gracious and how compassionate, that that, that God is leading you. And we've also talked about how powerful he is. How, how the, the Yahweh God, and we'll talk more about the great I am, is leading you. This is a beautiful promise of a truth, but then also there is application to us of this is the way it's supposed to be. God's supposed to lead, not you. And it's so easy for us in our life, in the church, to set off in our direction and be like, hey, here's where I'm going. Hey, God, will you come with me? <laughs> God, this is what we're going to do. Will you bless this? And that's totally backwards. It's, God, where are you going? I want to come with you. God, what are you doing? Let me be plugged into that. God will always bless what God's doing. (laughs) He's consistent in that way. And, And for us, ultimately, for us to say, here's where I'm going, will you come with me? Or here's what I'm doing, will you bless that? I know we don't think about it this way a lot, but what we're really doing is saying, I'll be God now. And you do what I want. And it's a subtle and sneaky form of idolatry where we make ourselves God and we worship ourselves. And so he leads, which means the implication here should be we follow him. Uh, Let's just do that again. And then, you know, when we're saying, hey, the shepherd-sheep metaphor is like a sports metaphor today, I think it's helpful to say God speaks in ways that help us know him. Like you aren't doing a fruitless thing when you come to the Bible and you say, what's this teach me about God? What you're doing in that moment is you're aligning yourself with what the God of the universe has decided to do in his word. In his mercy, in his grace, in his wisdom, he has stepped down from the, the place of glory that we could never fathom, and he condescends to compare himself to a shepherd. And he's like, because this will help you know me, and I want you to know me. Like he's willing to talk in terms that help you grasp who he is. God speaks in ways that help us know him, and so God wants us to know him. You aren't having to work against him and pry it out of him to figure out who he is. Like he's, he's telling you. We saw that in Acts 17 in Acts. It says that, that God has arranged the times and events and places in your life so that you might reach out to him and find him. Like everything in your life, he's placing you exactly where you are when you're there because he's wanting you to know him. He's working for you to know him. And so when we come in and we're not looking for him, We're already missing what he's doing. When we come to the Bible and we look for some kind of answer about our life other than who God is, we're missing what God's doing in the Bible. Like Who he is is the most important thing for your life, and he's giving that to you. He's making it known in terms that you can understand, in ways that you can connect with. And then he takes that and says, okay, if this is who I am, now here's what this means for your life. Like Here's how this applies to you. Here's how this affects everything else in your life. And I want us to get there in a minute. And so... Here's some notes that I put down, and the way I was going about it today, and you've, you've done most of this, and so we'll go quickly on some of it, but I was looking at the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is my shepherd. I felt like we had four different things to reflect on there. And so with the Lord, just in case you aren't familiar with where this comes from, when God's people are slaves in Egypt... The, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, when it starts. They're slaves in Egypt, and he's raised up this man named Moses who's going to deliver his people out of slavery. But Moses doesn't do the... He, it's exactly what we just said. He doesn't say, hey, God, what's your plan? Show me, I'll follow you. Moses jumps the gun, and he murders an Egyptian. And so the guy that's supposed to deliver God's people is a murderer now, and he has to flee to save his life. They're trying to kill him. He's out, now he's out in the wilderness as a what? <laughs> 
as a shepherd for 40 years, taking care of sheep. 40 years out in the wilderness. And you would think, all right, so God, God's going to boot Moses, leave him out there. He's going to find somebody more worthy to do this thing. It's not who God is. It's not what he does. He goes and he finds Moses in the wilderness. And he's like, I never did call you because you were worthy. I called you because I called you. And so he calls him again, speaks to him out of a burning bush. But Moses, <laughs> Moses didn't have it. Whether it's, whether it's just selfishness, and he's like, I want to be left alone. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Whether it's fear and insecurity, whether it's a sense of guilt over what he's done, he's like, no, God, find somebody else. It's not me. I don't speak well. I can't do this. They won't believe me. They won't listen to me. I can't do this. I can't lead your people against Pharaoh out of, out of Egypt. And so God starts answering Moses' objections and his fears. And so at one point, uh-oh, all my notes fell. Um, that's not for today, not notes for today, so we're good, but I'll just clean it up later. M- Moses is speaking all of his fears. And with this one, first Moses says, who am I? This is Exodus 3.11, if you want to look at it later. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And you know, by the way, the way we answer that, like if we aren't saying who God is is the core of all reality, the way we answer is, well, Moses, here's what's good about you. You've learned your lesson. You were raised in Pharaoh's palace. You've got a great education in in the way that you've got connections in Egypt. You've already shown that you're assertive and aggressive. I mean, I know you killed a guy and you shouldn't have, but there's some good things in that that we can work with. You've been out here. You've paid your dues for 40 years. You've learned patience now. Like we would list all, that's not why God's calling him. (laughs) It's not because of who Moses, Moses says, who am I? And God said, I will be with you. (laughs) like, hey, there's no good answer I can give you about you that would be why I'm calling you. If I try to answer that, the answer is going to be, yep, I shouldn't call you. He's like, here's why I'm calling you, because I will be with you, right? It's who God is. So his first answer is, yeah, you are not the person who can do this, but I am. And then so Moses comes back and says, well, suppose I go to them, and I tell them that you sent me, and they ask, what's your name? What shall I tell them? And here's where it comes. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and that's the capital L-O-R-D right there, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then there's probably a footnote in your Bible that says that the Hebrew for that word Lord sounds just like the Hebrew for I am, like they're closely connected in their language. And so when he says the Lord is my shepherd, let's come over here where we can write notes a little bit more easily. This is I am, you know, the great I am. I am who I am. And some of what's contained in that name, you think that God is self-defined. Nothing outside of God makes God who he is. Nothing outside of God defines God. And he's the only being in all reality who's like this. He's not derivative. He's not derived from anything else because he's also self-existent. He's uncreated. He's always been, always existed. He is who he is because he is who he is. Like when you want to point to the reason for God, you have to point to God. Nothing else is like that. Like we're all derivative. We're all, he's uncreated. Everything else is created. He's original. Everything else is derived. He's the source. Everything else flows out of him. He is defined by himself alone. We're all defined in connection to him, relation to him, and in connection to everything else that he creates. And just the reason I think this is so important is to try to, you can't wrap your mind around it. There is no illustration. Like nobody else is like this. Nothing else is like this. I think the closest you get is if you think about an author outside of a book writing a book. You know, and and the, the characters in the book being completely dependent on that author. And the author is not dependent on them at all. Like his world exists outside the book. They only exist inside the book. And imagine that author writing himself into the book to interact with those characters like stepping down into the story he's writing. And now, now he's still this guy outside of it writing it, but he's also in it interacting with the That's the best I can give you. But the reason I think it's so important is to try to let your mind just get blown of this is who he is. This is the person we're talking about, the being we're talking about. This is the God we're talking about, unlike anything else you know. 
self-existent, self-defined, that the best way he can describe himself when he's trying to give his name to Moses is, I am. I, I am who I am. You want to know me, you have to know me. That's what, that's what he's saying right there. You can't look at anything outside of me to know me. You have to know me. Like, illustrations help, but they're not him. He's bigger than them. He's greater than them. And that's why, that's why for the rest of your life, you can learn all this stuff intellectually, and you can know all kinds of facts about God and not know God. Those facts can be true about God, and you can know things that are true about God, but do you know him personally, intimately, who he is as he reveals himself to you and interacts with you and you have a relationship with him that he is who he is. So that, that's what he does there with I am. I also think that we could say God has perfect freedom. And you may wonder why I say that. Can you imagine anything more free than just to say, this is who I am and I get to be me? I am who I am. Nothing outside of me influences me changes me, shapes me. Like, who I am is exactly who I am. He has perfect freedom to be himself completely, to express himself exactly as he is, unaffected by anything outside himself. And listen, here's why this is such great news for you and me, just one piece of it. What it means is when God loves you, it's not affected by anything outside of him, including you. God loves you because he is love. That is his nature. It flows out of him. He loves you because of him. He chooses you because of him. And so it, it doesn't ebb and flow with your behavior, whether or not you deserve it. Like You don't affect how he loves. He loves because of him. And that's, that's just one piece of it. He's got perfect freedom. And then God is true to himself. Who he is, he's always going to be. He's always going to be it consistently. He's always going to be true. Like None of the rest of us are this way. And it varies for all of us. But there are thing, there's things in me, like who I really am, that I'm just too much of a coward. Like It's too vulnerable. It's too precious. It's too deep inside me. It's like everybody can't see that piece of me. And I'm not consistent with that part of me. And that's not a good thing. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just telling you. I know it's in my heart and I know it's in your heart. There's other things, there's other things inside of me where it's just like, no, if they knew that, there's no way. They'd be done with me. They'd write me off. They'd hate me. They'd give up on me. It's one of the beautiful things about stepping into gospel community where you really start to understand the love and grace of God and you find these people who are trying to live that out with you and you start to say, you know what? I believe that Jesus loves me this way and Jesus lives in you and I see that you're trying to love me this way. I'm going to trust you with this. I want to, have, like, I want to love you this way. I want you to love... Here it is. Like, here's, here's some of my darkest stuff, the stuff that I can see right now. Here's the stuff I struggle with the most. Here, here's the, the biggest failures inside of me spiritually. Let me confess those and bring them out into the light because if it doesn't depend on me, like God loves me because of who he is and God lives in you, then God can produce that kind of love in you and he can create that type of community within his church. But, but the point right here is none of us are perfectly true to ourselves. We put on these masks, we pretend for people, we polish ourselves up, we, we gauge the type of behavior we think they want from us and we give them that because what we want from them is praise and acceptance. And so much of what we do is dictated by the things that we want from other people. And we think, if I give them this, none of that's true to you. Like, if you could answer the question, why would you do that? Because that's who I am. And I know sometimes we say that in a really, like, arrogant, sinful way. But, like, if you could answer that question, everything in your whole life, and by the way, when you say because that's who I am, that's usually not the real reason either. <laughs> like, you've usually got some stuff that you're not facing yet inside of you that's controlling you and dictating what you do, and you don't even want to admit the stuff you're struggling with that's prompting that behavior to come out of you. But, like, if you could really say, no, this is who I am, and I'm always going to be who I am, and nothing's going to shake that. And, and the thing about God is he's perfect in who he is. Like everything about him is exactly what it's supposed to be in all of its infinite fullness. And he's always true and consistent in that. Just You can't grasp who that is. And that's just the Lord. I am. Yahweh. The great I am. Now, yeah. Right, yeah. God, God acts. He doesn't react. And we probably get that with the is a whole lot here, that 
God is always the initiator, and we're the responders. There's a great section in, a, I've been reading the Narnia books to my girls lately, and I'm trying to get it, it's the, it's the Silver Chair, I think it's the fourth book. And there's a section where the two kids go to Narnia, and Aslan is the Jesus figure in the, Jesus figure in the book, and one of the girl, the girl says to Aslan, the lion, she says, well, we came because we prayed and asked you to bring us here. And they had. And he says, the only reason you would ever ask me to bring you here is because I was already asking you to come here. <laughs> That's not the exact quote. But he's saying, I prompted you to pray the prayer that prompted me to bring you here. Uh, and that is true. That, that, that he is the initiator and we respond to him. And we do have a responsibility for how we respond to him. And I'm not trying to like unpackage that mystery right now. But we're responsible for how we respond. But never doubt the fact that you're responding to the great I am. The timeless, eternal, self-existent, infinite being who rules over all things and sees all things and knows all things and controls all things. That he's initiated his work and you're responding to him. All right. We, got it. we, got it. we can do this. So we're still on the Lord. But we've got to go one more place. So... God does use Moses, and he gives Moses what he needs, and he even gives Moses his brother Aaron, because like, Moses isn't going to do it on his own. He even, he, even after all that great stuff right there, Moses is like, no, send somebody else. And God's like, no. <laughs> I, I picked you. <laughs> I'll give you Aaron, and Aaron will speak for you. So they lead the people out of slavery. Now they're out in the wilderness. Go, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God and receive God's revelation for his people. While he's up there, like first thing they do, thanks for freeing us from slavery. Here, we're going to make a, a, a false idol, a false god here. We're going to worship this golden calf. And Aaron, the one that you gave to help Moses lead us, he's the one that's going to do it. That's, that's, their, that's how they thank God. And that's, listen, that's how we thank God. Like, how many good things does God give us? You know where they got that gold? God worked in the Egyptians' hearts to give them the Egyptians' wealth as they're leaving. Like, hey, see ya, you've lost all your slave labor. Also, we'll take all your wealth too. And the Egyptians said, yeah, please, go, take it. So God provides for them these riches. Their thank you to God is we'll use these riches to make a false God. And so many times God gives us good things, and we do this right here, and that good gift from God becomes an idol immediately. I'm going to grasp it, I'm going to look to it instead of looking to the one who gave it to me. And so they, like, this is worthy of death right here. The way they've rebelled against God and rejected God and insulted God. And God tells Moses, like, I should destroy them. And he even makes Moses this offer, like, I'll make a greater people out of you. And we see humility in Moses here that, that then gets reflected in Jesus all the more, that Jesus is even greater than Moses. For Moses, like, no, no, no. Don't do that for me. Spare them. Be merciful to them. And he, and he tells God, he's like, because of your name, you've, you've revealed your name, that you're the great I am. And now the Egyptians know you brought them out. And if you kill them in the desert, the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to think that you couldn't do what you promised. And God's like, you're right. And I'm glad I finally got you to where you see that. <laughs> now, I'll do what you ask. I'll be with you. I'll forgive them. Like, I'll still be their God when they don't deserve me. They've already turned away from me. I'm not turning away from them. That's what's happened in the story. And then Moses, when he sees how gracious God is and how forgiving, it's like this is like the ultimate moment of boldness from this guy. He's like, all right. I asked God for something completely ridiculous. Like, forgive them. Don't destroy them. Be their God anyway. And he said he would do it. You know what? I'm going to ask for something even more ridiculous. And he looks at God and he says, now show me your glory. Like, show me the thing that nobody gets to see. And God says, if you see it, like, unhindered, it'll kill you. You can't handle it. But I tell you what, I'll give you what you ask for. Like, you'll, you'll see me as I pass by, and I'll speak my name to you. Like, I'll tell you who I am, and my glory is in who I am. And so here's this other, the Lord, Yahweh. It's in Exodus 34. And listen, when God passes by, he, 34, 6, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord. So twice, you know, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And you, you want to unpack, like, who is this Lord and the Lord is my shepherd? When God can tell Moses anything he wants about himself, 
He says, here's my glory as God. He says, God is, and I'm not going to write that over and over, God is compassionate. This is your God. This is your God who is your shepherd. This is the God who cares for you. He has compassion for you. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. So God is gracious, giving gifts that you don't deserve, things you could never earn, slow to anger, which we patient, that's what we would say, patient with people who don't deserve patience, abounding in love. Sometimes it also says rich in love. Like not just that he has love, he has riches of love, like treasure chests of love and faithfulness, rich in love, rich in faithfulness. He's going to keep his promises. He's going to do what he said. If he says you're his people, you're his people because of him and not because of you. Forgiving sin, wickedness, and rebellion. So God is forgiving and then, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Like He's still just. And what's so fascinating here is to see already built in right there, the gospel. Where he says, I'll forgive them. And yet I'm still going to punish. How? Because he takes these people who are guilty, and he takes their guilt off of them, and he puts it on Jesus. He says, now he's the guilty one. And I won't leave the guilty unpunished but I'll punish him in your place. He'll be guilty for you, and that's how I can forgive you. And he takes the guilty, and he declares innocent, justified, righteous. He speaks his word over you, and now he can treat you like you're innocent, justified, righteous. And he puts your sin on Jesus, and he says, condemned, guilty. And he's just, and he's righteous in what he does. And he punishes his son, instead of punishing you. And from the very beginning, he said, this is who I am. When you know me, you know a compassionate God, a gracious God, a God who is patient and slow to anger, a God who is rich in love and rich in faithfulness and forgives sin, wickedness, and rebellion. Like he has to pile that part up because that's our part. Sin, he'll forgive your sin. Wickedness, he'll forgive your wickedness. Rebellion, he'll forgive your rebellion. And he'll punish it. Nobody else does this. Nobody else comes up with it. And that's the Lord. All right, so is, now here's, here's where is hit me. Like, this is true was the first thing. Like, is. It is the case. <laughs> it's a fact. But then also, present tense. Like, right now. Wherever you are right now, this God is your God, and this God is your shepherd right now in the middle of that. Like, it's not God was my God, but I, I messed up and he's not anymore. And it, or it's not God was my shepherd, but things got off track and I got lost and he never came and found me. And it's not God will be my God someday. Like, if, if I'm good enough and I perform well enough and I can go find him, he'll be my shepherd. No. And it's not God may be. Or God hopefully will be. God, might, God is. He is your shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd right now. The hardest and darkest thing you ever go through, he is your shepherd. The worst thing you ever do, he is your shepherd. The best things that ever happen to you, they come from the hand of your good shepherd. All of it. Always truth. This is always who he is. And wherever you are right now, you can look to him and you can say, okay, this is who you are. And this is what I need right now. And I have it in you. I'm coming to you. Please, compassion, grace, love. I need you to pour out rich love on me. Faithfulness. You've made these promises. Keep these promises. That you can appeal to who he is because that's always who he is. My. Kent already hit this one for us. I just heard it as personal and intimate. Like it's not just generic and the whole, it's not just that he's the shepherd of this entire flock of sheep. You're a shepherd. You, individually. That he knows each one of his sheep. And right now, he's your shepherd caring for you this way. He's inviting you into this personal, intimate relationship with him. Where he speaks to you out of his word. He speaks to you by his spirit. He speaks to you by other people in his body. And he lets you speak to him through prayer. Like if that's who he is... The, the Lord, I am, Yahweh, if that's who he is. I mean, do you realize there's nothing like having a relationship with that God? And he's claiming you. The Lord is my shepherd. Like the shepherd owns the sheep, right? 
You don't get to be his sheep because you're like, he's going to be my shepherd. No, he chooses you. He says, you're my sheep. That makes me your shepherd. He's claiming you. It makes all the sense in the world for somebody who's worthless and doesn't deserve it to be like, oh, this guy's great. Let me, be, let me grab hold of him. But that's not what's going on here. The one who's great is looking at the ones who don't deserve it. He says, I want them. And he grabs hold of you. He makes you his sheep. And then shepherd, we hit all this already, so I'm not going to write it all down. I had protects, provides, leads, guides, cares for, and then I had knows. I don't think, like Jesus says, like the shepherd knows his sheep, and they know his voice. And again, that's that intimate relationship. Anything else you all want to add before I wrap us up right here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, and again, it's, listen, anytime that we sit down in, in five words like this, you all, like, I want you to know, if you do that and you, you struggle, don't be discouraged at all. Like, not every five, obviously, I picked five words that I thought would be really rich for us. But also, what we've done, we haven't sat in five words. And we've been in Exodus 3, we've been in Exodus 34, we've talked about John 10, we've talked about, you know, the story of David and 1 Samuel. We, we've, but the deal is, the Bible is so consistent and internally coherent that any piece of it takes you to the rest of it and always let the rest of it speak to it. Always. And so if you read five words, you're like, I don't know. Well, read the next five words. <laughs> I went on a mission trip to China one time, and, uh, and, and this missionary was planting churches over there, and he'd done a great job like, teaching these house churches how to teach the Bible with this question. He would say, in order to study a verse, how many verses do we have to read? And of course, this isn't like really a mathematical formula, but they would say 21. And I was like, why are they saying that? And they said it in Mandarin, and my interpreter told me. But, and I was like, why are they saying that? Like, the 10 before and the 10 after. And that was always their rule. You want to read this verse? You read the 10 before and the 10 after. And, I mean, and again, it's not like that's it's not 21, but his point to them was that the rest of the Bible speaks to the rest of the Bible. And so when we say that we see God being like serving us, doing things for us in this psalm, you flip over to John 13 and Jesus, the king of glory, and it says that he knew his glory. He knew the power the Father had given to him and that it was time for him to return to the Father. So what does he do with all the power and glory that he has in the whole universe? He gets down on his knees and he wash, washes their dirty, stinky feet. He serves them. Them. And he says, I've got to redefine king for you. I've got to redefine Messiah for you. I'm a servant king, a servant Messiah, because I want you to be like that as my people. He's a greater king than the world's ever known. He's a king that doesn't need anything from his subjects, so he gives everything to his subjects. Like you, it seems like the power of a king would be, hey, I'm king, I'm going to get this from you. But listen, all that reveals is that there's stuff the king needs that he doesn't have. <laughs> Like the demands of a king, the demands of any of us in our life, of you give something to me, all that does is reveal your weakness and your neediness. You need something from somebody else. Jesus didn't need anything from anybody, so he gave everything to us. He is a different kind of king. He's a greater king. He's a servant king. And yeah, like he is full of what he does for us. And I, and I did want to just, because I didn't want to rip it out, and I mean, the Lord is my shepherd, obviously there's great stuff here. But the rest of the psalm now, think about, if that's who God is, like the Lord, and he's my shepherd, the rest of this whole thing is application. Here's what it means for us today. I shall not want, and that means lack. Like we've kind of kept an old word there. that doesn't mean I won't lack anything that I need. If the Lord is my shepherd, he's going to give me what I need, and I won't lack the things I need. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, peacefulness of goodness. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And I feel like that's David jumping in, but like, hey, I am using a sports illustration right here. But we're talking about spiritual truth. But we're talking about what he does in you as his people. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Notice this, for his namesake. This is still all about him. 
he does these good things to you for his glory. And this is how he shows that he's the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love and faithfulness, forgiving sin, wickedness, and rebellion. Like he reveals who he is by being good to you in this way. And so when he leads you in this way, it's still to make himself known. Because his name's the only one worth making known. It's not your name and my name. It's just really good for us that he's chosen to attach his glory to being good to us. So he's fully committed to being good to you because he's fully committed to his glory because his glory is the most valuable thing in the whole universe. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This was the, all the time, where the darkest moment of your life. You're with me, for you're with me. He's with you, is right now, your shepherd. When you are dying at the bottom of a dark black hole, he is at the bottom of the dark black hole with you. He doesn't leave you there. Also notice the shift that happens right there. I heard somebody say this a long time ago, and it stuck with me. To right here, David talks about God. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He, he, he. He's talking to us about God. But right here, he makes a shift. For you are with me. And he starts talking to God. And two things I want you to see right here. First one's this. Never go too long talking about God without talking to God. You talk about God too long without talking to God and you'll get God wrong. He's got to keep reminding you who he is. He's got to keep showing you who he is. He's got to keep revealing himself. And it's not about you knowing about God. It's about you knowing God. It's not just knowing these truths about God. It's about experiencing these truths of God, experiencing who God is himself. So there's that shift. And then also notice when the shift happens. It's been really good so far. Makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters, restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness. Oh, that's really good, and I'm glad he does that for me. And here, I've got my good stuff. And I'm thankful that he does it, but I've got my good stuff. And then it goes real, real bad. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. And all of a sudden, I don't have my good stuff, but I still have him. And I turn away from the good stuff, and I turn to him. This is how he disciplines you. This is how he brings about this good work in your heart where you know him more. And he says, I love giving you good things, and he's going to give you lots of good things. And thank him for them. Let them point you to him and see his goodness. But in the moment when the good stuff's gone, look to him. Look, you are still with me. Those good things were from you, but they're not you. And when they're gone, you're still here. And often, often, God will use your valley of the shadow of death to point you to him. And he'll say, yeah, you've gotten distracted by this stuff. And as much as I love giving good things to you, if, if all your heart wants is that and not me, that's not good for you. And I love you too much to let you be satisfied with that. So here, come to the valley of the shadow of death with me and it'll be dark and it'll be scary, but I'll be with you. And you'll know me, and you'll learn to talk to me there. I'm telling you, I know for me personally, I've learned more about talking to God in the hardest moments of my life than anything else. The darkest moments, my biggest failures, my worst pain. I, I hate to say this, but that may be the only place I learn. Like the rest of the time, I may coast on what he's taught me in the dark spot. But he's always good and faithful there. And so now David starts talking to God. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the rest of the psalm, he's talking to God now about God's goodness. And the last thing I want to point out, and this is where we'll end, follow, that word follow right there, it's, it's a good translation um, but the, the Hebrew word is stronger than what we usually mean by follow. And, and what like follow, a lot of times we think, okay, I'm going here, and goodness and mercy are kind of trickling after me, like they're following me. It's not that kind of follow. It's like if we're playing freeze tag, and I'm running as hard as I can, and like I'm old now, and my body does not work the way it used to, and my nine-year-old daughter is as fast as me. Like it's embarrassing, but it's true. Like, I got to give it all I can to stay in front of her. And so when she's following me, like that's a different kind of follow, right? We'd say chase. That's the word here. Like God is chasing you down. 
with goodness and mercy. Wherever you are, he's coming on a dead sprint for you with goodness and mercy. And the reason why is because of everything we said earlier about all this being fulfilled in Jesus. And when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, you point forward to Jesus and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And so everything that's true in this psalm about the Lord being your shepherd is true about Jesus and you see it in Jesus. But then the good shepherd does this thing that it's like, it's like God has a sense of humor, but this holy sense of humor where the, the humor in it almost makes it like richer and heavier and weightier because the good shepherd shows up and says, I'll be the lamb of God. The shepherd dies like a lamb to set the lambs free. The shepherd, the son, becomes a shepherd and dies like a lamb so that the lambs, the sheep, can become sons. That's why goodness and mercy are chasing you down. The son became a sheep for you so that these sheep can become children of God. He sees you as his child now, his son, his daughter. And, and, and moms, the way that your heart beats for your kids and your love pours out to your kids, I know that it's good. Like, I've had a really good mom who's loved me really well in a lot of ways. The way you love your kids, the way your mom has loved you, if it's been good, is nothing compared to the way that God loves you now, that you're his children. And if you haven't had a good mom, I'm sorry. If you haven't had a good dad, I'm sorry. But I promise you that God's everything you need in that brokenness too. And that he has goodness and mercy for you that you've never dreamed of. And he's chasing you. like he just, He's just waiting for you to turn around and look in his face and see how much he loves you in Jesus and see how much he approves of you in Jesus. And to realize the fact that he's always, always been there and he's always going to be there. So we're going to worship him right now. We're going to sing a couple of songs. During this first song, we're going to have pastors, elders, staff, wives down here. If you want to talk with somebody, pray with somebody, we just want you to have the opportunity to respond in that way right now. Um, but I'm going to pray for us, and our worship team is going to come and lead us, and we're going to sing and worship, and we're going to praise God for being this God, this Lord, this great I Am, who fulfills all of his promises in Jesus, this shepherd does. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray today that our hearts are overwhelmed by how rich it is and how good you are. And again, Father, as always, my words are so inadequate and so insufficient for who you are, and it's just your grace that any of us could speak about you or know you at all. But I pray, Father, that beyond anything that any of us have said this morning, that you will teach and you will work and you will reveal yourself and you will do something in us that only you can do, that you will build your church and make us your people. Father, help us see Jesus, the good shepherd, the greater shepherd, the greater David, the greater Moses, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Help us worship right now because of Jesus. Help us love you because of Jesus. Help us trust you because of Jesus. Help us follow you and live for you because of Jesus as he lives in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.